let us pray as we begin. Lord God, as we have sung your praises, given of our means, it is now time for us to hear from you. And so as the words are spoken, may they reach our hearts. May you be glorified through this teaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to picture in your mind for a moment a tan Ford pickup truck. Three-quarter ton with a canopy on the back. If you need to close your eyes to help you picture this, go ahead. I won't count you out for sleeping in church. Tan pickup truck with a canopy on the back. In the canopy, inside the bed of the truck, there are animal crates. Inside those crates are four dogs. One is pregnant. There's a few smaller animal crates as well, and inside those animal crates are three cats. One is very old and complains a lot. Behind that tan pickup truck, it is pulling a three-horse trailer. Inside the three-horse trailer, there's four horses. Someone do the math. This is the mammal mobile. Behind the pickup truck, pulling the three-horse trailer with four horses in it, there is a red pickup truck. This one's a Ford F-250, has another canopy on the back. Inside that canopy are boxes. That pickup truck, the red one, is pulling another horse trailer, which has more boxes and more belongings in it. So how many vehicles do we got now? Two vehicles. How many trailers? Two trailers. How many animals? Enough. (laughs) Behind the red pickup truck, there is a yellow rider box truck, the biggest rider van box truck that you can rent with all of my parents' belongings in it. Behind the rider van, it is towing a car trailer with a family car. Behind that caravan of three vehicles, there's other cars waiting to pass. No one else. My parents are moving across the country from Washington State to Virginia. And if you ask my mother, she would say, this was a long haul. Thankfully, I was in college, didn't have to experience it. But my my mom says that they traveled from the Seattle area over to northern Idaho and Sandpoint area where they spent the night at a friend's place. They got up that, actually they spent most of the day, they got up that evening and drove through the night down to Nebraska where they stayed for one night at my sister's place, spent the Sabbath there. And then they drove onwards to Indiana and then drove to Virginia. They got to Virginia early that morning, pulled the mattresses out of the rider truck, slept for a few hours, and then my dad had to take his two drivers, one was his brother, back up to the airport to catch their flight. So they had to make it to Virginia (laughs) at a certain time. It was a long haul. About, she said maybe about six days total of traveling, and it felt like forever. Thankfully, they only broke down one time. 
But having to take the horses out every few hours, walk them around, let the dogs out to do their business. One long haul. Thankfully, though, there was no kids traveling with them to ask the question. What's that question, kids? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, not quite. We're not quite there yet, but in a little while, we'll be going home. Are we there yet? Not quite. But soon and very soon, we will. Are we there yet? Almost. Almost. In just a moment, you will see your Lord a-coming. Jesus, are we there yet? Because I'm tired of this old world. Not quite, my child, but keep the hope that you have because in the morning, we'll be home. At times, it is hard to keep that hope alive. To recognize, yes, Jesus is coming. And as the years and the months roll by, we see the signs of His coming, yet we still have to wait. As Seventh-day Adventists, we look forward to His coming and His the Lord delays in His coming, and those, so we have to wait. The New Testament writers, they thought Jesus was coming even at the door. He was right there, and so they had that hope. They had that promise. But in the same time, they still said, we must be patient. Take your Bibles and let us look at James chapter 5 again, what we read this morning for our call to worship. James chapter 5, he reminds his readers to be patient. James chapter 5, beginning with verse 7. James says, therefore, he's, he's wrapping up his message, his letter to the church, and he's wrapping it up and he's saying, therefore, be patient, my brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And he uses the example of the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. Verse 8, James says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James asks us, encourages us to be patient. And then he says, establish your hearts. Fortify your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. Build up your hearts. Because there's a long haul coming. But he also says the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's coming soon. When did James write this? How many years ago? A long time ago, right? About 2,000 years ago. It's at hand? 2,000 years is at hand? Well, 
Peter gives us a little clarification, though, doesn't he? When he says a thousand years is likened to the Lord as a, as a day. So in just you know, about two days, that's at hand. It's coming. <laughs> but in our estimation, we still have to wait. We've been looking at this theme of being fortified while we wait. We looked at, about a month ago, I guess it was, we looked at being in the Word, diving into the Word of God and, and taking in God's Word. We looked at how God produces holiness in us. He wants us to be holy as He is holy. And we have to patiently wait for that to happen in our lives as He's building up our lives and strengthening our lives. That's what Paul talks about. But what about, Pete? What about James here? James is talking about being fortified as waiting for the Lord. As we wait, we are to establish our hearts and to strengthen our hearts. So what does it look like as we prepare for this long haul? What does James, what does a fortified heart look like for James? Now I'm assuming, and I hope I'm assuming correctly, that we all want fortified hearts. Whoever doesn't want a fortified heart, stand up. Okay, that's a good sign then, right? <laughs> right? So we all desire to have fortified hearts. We don't want hearts, as Jesus describes in Matthew 15, where he says, out of the heart is, where, is what produces evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Anybody want that kind of heart? I don't think anybody does, but anyone recognize that that's what happens in their own lives as well. Because out of our hearts, yes, Jesus says this is where sin comes from. Because as humans, we fight against this evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, these things. We don't want this kind of a heart. We want to have a heart that is fortified, that is holy unto the Lord. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, we, don't, we want a heart like this because God is building our hearts to be fortified. He says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That's the kind of heart that we want, a holy heart, a heart that is, is established in holiness. As Jesus says, be holy as I am holy, as God says. We looked at that a few weeks ago of being holy and what that meant. But for James, what is James talking about? Establishing our hearts. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. Verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Anybody want to take a guess at what one of these is? What's that? Do you have that in your, on, on your kitchen counter? A camera? That there, that there is a food computer. That's a microwave? That's actually an electronically operated oven using high-frequency electromagnetic magnetic waves that penetrate food, causing its molecules to vibrate and generate heat within the food to cook it in a very short time. Did you get that? We know what it is. It's a microwave, right? It's so nice. There's one of these in probably almost every home in America. A microwave oven. 
It's so nice to be able to take those leftovers out of the fridge, put them in a microwave-safe dish, pop them in there, and nuke them, right? Heat them up, and you have hot food instantly, right away. Sometimes when I'm hungry and I want a baked potato, I don't want to have to wait an hour for that thing to cook in the oven, the real oven. Pop it in the microwave. It doesn't taste quite as good and the skin gets a little hard. But it's easy for us to jump into even that kind of a mindset. Think about it. When you used to, maybe none of us, but think about what happened years and years ago if you wanted to actually cook a meal or even heat up leftovers. First... You had to cut down a tree. Then you had to split the wood. Then you had to let the wood dry. Then you had to stock the oven, light a fire. Oh, don't forget about having to go down to the creek to get the water, to bring it to your trough, because there was no running water. And you had to boil the water. Then you had to wait for the things to boil to cook, or have to put it in the oven and wait. It took forever. Cooking was a chore, and some people say it still is. But think about how it used to be. Now we have microwave ovens. Now we have convection ovens. Now we have pressure cookers. We just got a pressure cooker over Christmas. Let me tell you, that's amazing. You put it in there, you push a button, done. You let it sit sometimes, but it's done. I kind of wonder, and I think, and I believe that our society has become a microwave society. Where we want it quick, we want it hot, we want it now. Don't make me wait in line at the grocery store. Open up another lane. Come on. Don't make me do homework over spring break. That's a waste of time. I don't have to wait. I don't have to struggle through this homework. Dial-up internet? What's that? That is slow as molasses in January. Don't have to wait. I want fast internet. I want it now. Why is there a traffic jam? I got to get to my appointment quick. Microwave society. And I kind of wonder if that has drifted into our spiritual lives as well. Lord, I don't want to deal with this temptation anymore. I don't want to deal with this struggle anymore. Take it away from me now. Take it away quick. Jesus says, I discipline those whom I love. And the holiness that God is trying to produce in us is not for His benefit. It's for ours. Patience, as James says. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Patience is a result of of the Spirit dwelling within us. One of the fruits of the Spirit. So the question that we need to ask ourselves, if you're following along either in the Bible app or on the paper outline that was in your worship bulletin, the question that we ask ourselves, am I a patient person? Soul-searching question sometimes. It seems like every time we pray for patience, God gives us opportunities to practice that patience. 
But this does lead us into another goal of the fortified heart. Verse 9, if we continue reading in James chapter 5, verse 9, James reminds us, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, reminding us the second coming. But he's saying, do not grumble against one another. An impatient heart is a heart that is going to grumble and complain. Why is there traffic? Who had an accident? An impatient heart is one that grumbles. Now, if there is any group of people in the world's history who had maybe a smidgen of a right to grumble or complain, it probably was the Israelites who had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years when the trip could have taken less than two years. They were quite the complainers. And if you go through the history of Israel, you'll notice that they grumble and they complain quite a bit against God and against God's leadership. And you're like, come on guys, look at what God has just done for you. In Exodus chapter 15, right after God opens the Red Sea, gives them a path to walk upon on dry ground, they start complaining because they don't have anything to drink. The people complain, Exodus 15, 24, they complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Because this water that is here in this creek or this spring, it's bitter. And they called that place Marah, which means bitterness. God provided for them. Directed Moses to a branch, cut it off, put it in the spring. Clean, fresh water. So you'd think that might be the end of it. God provided for us. Praise God. Nope. They continued to complain. When they were hungry, they said, there's no food here. The whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. Exodus 16. So God provided for the complaining Israelites, gave them manna from heaven and quail to eat. So much quail. They gorged themselves and got sick. God was providing for the Israelites, even though they were grumbling and complaining. And even at the edge of the promised land, the land that God had promised and said, I will be with you and I will give you this as your inheritance. They say, oh no, we're not going in there. There be giants in there. So they wanted to choose another leader. All the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. So God said, okay, you want to die in the wilderness? Go ahead. And for 40 years, they wandered out in through the wilderness until the untrusting generation had died off. So if there was anybody who had the right to grumble, maybe they did. But God still says, be patient. And James says, plain and simple, do not grumble against one another. 
Pretty plain and simple, right? Yes and no. <laughs> it's plainly stated, do not grumble, do not complain. But it's not so simple to carry out, is it? It's natural for us as humans that when we are forced to wait or we have something that doesn't quite go our way, it's very natural for us to complain and to grumble. Personally for me, I have a a young family that is maturing. I love my family. But at the end of the day, when I am already emotionally spent... I'm worn out after having to deal with some teenagers, which I love those teenagers too. Some of them are sitting here. But other issues that as as a pastor you got to deal with. In the end of the day, when I'm tired, I've worn out, I don't want to have to ask my kids 15 times to brush their teeth, pick up their toys, and get into bed. I don't want to have to wait for their behavior. But if I value the relationship that I'm trying to build with them, then I will make sure, (laughs) do my best to have patience and to not grumble and get frustrated and complain against them. It's very easy for us to blame someone else when we have to wait. I'm having to wait here because you're not doing what I asked you to do. I'm having to wait here because this and that and this and that. It's easy, easy for us to blame someone else but that breaks down the relationship. Now it's true, it's true, they really may be the result of your waiting, the reason why you're waiting. But do I allow my impatience to turn into grumbling and destroy that relationship? James is asking us and encouraging us To as we wait for the return of the Lord, be patient as we wait, but also be patient with others. To not grumble against them, to not complain. Because as we saw what happened in the experience of the Israelites, they were condemned, the judges standing at the door. So the question we ask ourselves Am I a grumbler? Am I a complainer? Do I allow myself to blame others when I'm forced to wait? Like I said, again, these are some soul-searching questions. It's not easy for us to wait, especially when we're forced to wait. Am I a grumbler? When we're forced to wait, we feel like we suffer a difficulty. Maybe some of you think, I'm forced to wait until Pastor John is done talking. My stomach is grumbling. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I am a grumbler because my stomach is grumbling. But when we feel like we are forced to wait, we feel like we're suffering a difficulty. We're waiting for Jesus to return. James encourages us to fortify our hearts, to be patient, but then he uses an example of those who have gone before us. Continue reading with me in James chapter 5, verse 10. He says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. So he says, here's an example. 
Here's what we can do. Indeed, verse 11, we count them blessed who endured. Then he says, you've heard of the, the, you, you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So James is now taking an example from the Old Testament, applying it to the church's current situation, and says, look at what happened to Job. I kind of wonder if God put that story in the Bible, the, book of the, the story of Job, so that we would feel like our situation was never as bad off as Job's. Job had it rough. Lost his kids, lost his household, lost his livestock, lost his family, lost his wife. His wife left him, lost his health. He was sitting on an ash heap, scraping the boils from his body, and his friends almost left him as well. Here's Job's experience. Horrific suffering. Now, if anyone had the right to grumble, that would have been Job, right? But he didn't. He suffered horribly, but didn't grumble. James says that he had a characteristic of a fortified heart. He had perseverance. Notice the example of Job. He says, you've heard of the perseverance of Job. And then you've seen the end intended by the Lord. At the end of Job's life, he was blessed twice as much as what he had before. Twice as many oxen, twice as many donkeys, twice as many cattle, twice as many, not twice as many children, although you know it said at first he had seven sons and three daughters. Then after, at the end, he had seven sons and three beautiful daughters. So he had an amazing reinstatement as God in his compassion and his mercy gave to him. So in the face of trial, in the face of difficulties, the fortified heart perseveres. Fortified heart perseveres. Now, out of the realities of life, out of all of the things that we know for certain are going to happen in life, there's death. We know that death will happen. There's taxes, right? And there's difficulties. There's trials. There's crises. We know that these difficult times will happen, and it's hard to be steadfast in the face of trials. It's hard to practice patience when Jesus delays in his coming. It's easier to say, look, <laughs> it's been 2,000 years. Pfft, he's not coming. And so we give up. It's easier to give up. It's hard to be kind to others when they're not kind to us. It's hard to keep fighting when the temptation is strong. It's hard to persevere. But my friends, James is telling us today and reminding us today that the fortified heart as we're waiting for the return of the Lord is a persevering heart. As I was studying for this sermon today, I ran across a quote from Leonardo da Vinci about patience. He says, patience serves as a protection against wrongs as clothes do against cold. For if you put on more clothes as the cold increases, it will have no power to hurt you. So in like manner, you must grow in patience when you meet with great wrongs. 
and they will then be powerless to vex your mind. I think that's some biblical counsel that he's found there. Growing in patience as the difficulties are coming when we are met with great wrong. So the question that we ask ourselves, another goal of the fortified heart, do I persevere in the face of trials? It takes great patience. It takes great effort to push through, to carry on, to not falter. It takes great patience to wait for the second coming, to prepare for the long haul. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we may fortify our hearts. But <laughs> the patience wears thin as the years roll by. It can. Definitely can. As, as we... I'd like you to consider, as we wait, an illustration. Consider this as we wait for the return of the Lord. The tallest building in the world is which one? Which one? Tallest, tallest building in the world. It's in Dubai. Yep. I know some of you out there know this one. Thank you. The Burj Khalifa. Now, if, if I could turn the um, picture sideways, it'd be a better picture, you know, because it the height of the screen is not the smaller than the width. Burj Khalifa. It is 2,716 and one-half feet tall. That's pretty tall. How many feet is a mile? 5,280. So this is almost a half a mile. Almost a half a mile. More than half a mile. 5,200. Yeah, you're right. Why I'm the pastor, not the mathematician. Over half a mile tall. The Burj Khalifa has 57 elevators. There's a few elevators that are double decker, which I think would be pretty neat to ride on. Hey, you down there? You're going up. It has over 24,000 windows. It takes a crew of 36 full time workers three to four months to clean all those windows. And it's something that they, they just do constantly. The outside of those windows. It took six years to build the Burj Khalifa. Pretty long time. It's the lifetime of one of my kids. Maybe a lifetime of some of your kids. But did you know that six years is only just a fraction of time? When you look at other grand structures, take for example the Colosseum in Rome. Colosseum in Rome, where gladiators would play their violent games, where they would celebrate Roman victories. They say historians say that it would seat about fifty to eighty thousand people in this stadium. Underneath the stadium, there's tunnels and all sorts of chambers. An amazing engineering feat for when it was built. How many years did it take? Ten years. Ten years to build the Colosseum. In London, there is the York Minster Cathedral, a medieval church that has some amazing medieval architecture. It's one of the largest 
cathedrals in London. The stained glass windows has one of the largest windows, stained glass windows in the world. This is a, the great or the grand east window. It is the size of a tennis court. If you go and zoom in for detail, you'll see all these intricate panes of, of Bible scenes and all sorts of even history that they put in there. Amazing, amazing things. It took 252 years to build the York Minster Cathedral. How many lifetimes is that? Quite a few. But it's, if you go there, I've never been there. I'd love to go. No, actually, never been to London. But it'd be amazing to see this thing. We can keep going. Anybody know what this one is? That's Petra. That's in the land of the country of Jordan. Has, it was unknown for thousands of years, hundreds of years. People couldn't find, didn't find it, didn't even, know what it no, didn't even know it existed. This actually is one of the, I think this is the treasury of Petra. You see it on like Indiana Jones or other films, they'll have Petra. But Petra has multiple buildings or tunnels or caverns that have been carved out of the rock, out of the sandstone. Nothing that was built on top of each other. They carved this out of the sandstone. And there was monastery or there was um, religious structures. Uh, there was tombs, monuments, all sorts of things. They said that inside all of Petra, you could fit 20,000 people. I've looked at different time frames as to how long it took for Petra to be built. People, they, they haven't agreed on it because there's, they don't know when it started. But they say it's been between... 400 and 800 years to build Petra. Quite a long time. But we can't stop there even. In the country of China, there is a great wall called the Great Wall of China. It was to protect China from their enemies. Enemies from the north, enemies from Mongolia, Different dynasties over hundreds and thousands of years added on to the Great Wall of China, to what we have now today, 6,000 kilometers of a wall. Now, can you see the Great Wall of China from space? Only with a very trained eye and a high-resolution camera because it blends in with the rest of its surroundings. It's actually easier to see the pyramids at Giza easier than the Great Wall of China. And you can only see it from low Earth orbit too, they say, from the International Space Station. How long did it take the Great Wall of China to be built? About 2,000 years, they say. Over multiple kingdoms and dynasties of, of the reign of China. So when you think about these great structures, yes, you under, we understand a great structure, a great building, takes great time to create and complete. God is building and fortifying our hearts and our lives. Building a fortified heart takes time. It's an ongoing process that requires godly patience. And God's grand designs are never hurried. Consider that as we wait for the Lord's return. And as we wait for his strengthening of our hearts to become holy as he is holy as well, may our prayer be, Lord, fortify our hearts with patience. Let's pray together.
Father God, as we have looked at your scriptures this morning, the promises that James gives us, the encouragement that he exhorts us with to be patient, to not grumble, to persevere. May we take that to heart. May you fortify our hearts. May you build and strengthen us up. May you be glorified in our lives. As we wait for your return, may we share of your love, share of your goodness, your compassion, and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.